Hi, I'm Linda Eads from Ford Asset Management, and I'm joined today by Rashad Taeb, who contributes to our macroeconomic strategy at Ford, and he's also a portfolio manager on our fixed income funds. We're going to be touching on two topics that are going to be making the news in South Africa this week. That's the budget speech coming up on Wednesday afternoon, the 22nd of February, and whether South Africa is going to be graylisted by the Financial Action Task Force. And they're expected to make a decision on that by the end of this week, by Friday, the 24th of February. So, Rashad, let's start with the budget. We know that South Africans are already struggling under the high cost of living, got low levels of savings, and, of course, we have an energy crisis at the moment, which doesn't bode very well for our economic growth prospects. What are we expecting with regards to the budget? Let's start with the deficit. Uh, It was projected to be around 4.9% at the time of the medium-term budget policy statement. Do we think that's likely to end up better or worse than projected? So, Linda, the, the good news is that in the short term, the deficit's going to be better than projected. We were looking at 4.9%, but in reality, because tax revenues have come through a bit better than expected, VAT has come through better, and at the same time, the government has underspent, uh, you're actually looking at about a 4.5% deficit for February 2023. The problem comes going forward where the budget deficit is likely to be around 5% or even a little bit above as the effect of the SOE bailouts come through, as well as wage settlements for government employees. So going forward, while the government expects the deficit to be 4% and even a little bit below, we're still expecting consistent deficits above 5%. So let's talk first about that revenue line. We know that commodity prices have bailed us out historically. They've really contributed quite significantly. How much can we rely on that going forwards? Uh, I know there's a lot of talk of the fact that China reopening will be supportive of commodity prices. How much do we think we can rely on that contributing to revenue going forwards? Yeah, so we were very lucky to have a very nice commodity windfall where in 2021 revenue was $100 billion above expectations. This year, it's probably going to be around $70 billion windfall from commodities, but that's coming down quite quickly. So next year, you, you're probably looking at uh, you know for going from a $70 billion windfall to about $40 billion. Just this morning, uh, Amplets, for example, announced their results and their tax paid has reduced from $28 billion to 14 billion. That is a massive drop in just a year. And going forward, you probably next year, you're looking at about a three or four billion lower tax paid. And that's just one company. So I think we've had this massive benefit, but it is dwindling. And at the same time, uh, we're still spending as much as we've ever have. Rashad, how much is load shedding going to affect income tax collection going forwards? So interestingly, Linda, to date, we haven't really seen an impact. So the retail sales have still been strong. VAT collections have been reasonable. And mining and manufacturing, the the powerhouses of the economy, are actually shielded from two to three stages of load shedding. So it's only on days like today where generating units are down, we're hitting stage six, it becomes very difficult for them to operate. And that's where you see production down. And over time, that's definitely going to impact the economy and eventually tax collections. Let's turn our attention to the expenses side of the equation. The Treasury is forecasting a 3% per annum growth in the government wage bill over the next three years. And we know that slowing down that wage bill is critical with regards to their strategy. How likely is it that that will turn out to be the case? I see that nine of the biggest public sector trade unions have already threatened indefinite strikes. So, Rashad, how likely is government to be able to stick to their guns on bringing that public sector wage bill under control? 
So Linda, firstly, I think we have to commend government because over the last few years, they've been able to contain the wage bill. In the 2010s, we've had increases of anywhere from 10 to 20% per annum, and that had inflated the wage bill to levels which were almost out of control. Now you've had 3.5%, which in reality, if you add the gratuity and the pay progression, which was more like 45 or 5%, but I think that's done a lot in terms of containing the amount we spend on government wages. And going forward, if we can maintain those type of levels, I think we'll be in, in a good position. Now, unions are obviously being more aggressive and they're looking for double-digit increases. I'm not sure if the members have the appetite for unpaid strike action because they may end up out of pocket even if they get their desired increase. And then the giant elephant in the room is, of course, Eskom. So in October, Godongwana said the state will take on some of Eskom's debt. How much of that debt can the government actually afford to assume? So Linda, I think Eskom's 450 billion rand of debt is either explicitly or implicitly guaranteed by the government. It's already the government's problem. So that adds about five percentage points of debt to our GDP. And whether the government comes up with a capital injection or debt transfer, uh, I don't think it makes much of a difference. What's critical is actually turning on Eskom around and ensuring that it firstly produces the power that it should be able to produce in order to drive the economy and then also control Eskom's expenditure, which has been totally reckless over the last decade. So let's talk about debt levels for a moment. You mentioned debt to GDP. It's just over 70% at the moment, and that's up quite dramatically from around 40% 10 years ago. When we look at that increase and potentially even more increases to come, if, as you say, Eskom debt is taken on, how does that affect how you think about the risk return trade-off for government bonds? Simply, the higher the debt to GDP ratio, the higher the risk premium we need on government bonds. Two years ago, our debt-to-GDP ratio was at 80%, but having rebased our GDP, the ratio has now fallen to 70%. So we do have a reprieve, uh, but it is likely, given the spending problem and given the level of SOE bailouts, that our debt-to-GDP will continue to rise going forward. So the elevated yields we see on government bonds at the moment are not necessarily a free lunch, but a reflection of the high embedded risk premium in bonds. And so, Rashad, how does that affect how we are positioned in bonds overall? We think that bonds are fair value at the moment, but the risks are increasing because of the deteriorating debt dynamics driven by SOE bailouts. So for that reason, we're conservatively positioned in bonds across all our portfolios. Linda, the other news item this week is the potential for South Africa to be grey-listed. Now, six months ago, I think it was almost sure that we were going to be added to the gray list. But I think we have done a reasonable amount in trying to avoid it. And I think the probability has definitely decreased. Do you think that we are going to be gray listed this week? Well, uh, the National Director of Public Prosecutions, Shamila Batoy, has already told Parliament's Justice Committee that although we have come a long way, we haven't actually met all the requirements set by the Financial Action Task Force as yet. So from that perspective, if they stick to the strict list of requirements, we will be grey-listed. But hopefully we're on the right track and maybe we've bought ourselves some more time. I guess the question for you, Rashad, is investors are obviously worried about the impact that that might have if we are on the grey list, on the RAND and on capital flows. Do you think that it would actually make a difference if we are grey-listed to those factors? So I think from a capital flow perspective, South Africa is an emerging market which is judged alongside the Turkeys, the Mexicos, Colombia, etc. And in that category, as you mentioned, Turkey is grey listed. And you have, 
you know, entities with different levels of financial system, different credit ratings, and emerging market investors don't really care. I think they prefer to focus on the fundamentals and the debt levels, the growth, the actual political environment, uh, rather than a gray listing, which is somewhat arbitrary. And therefore, from a capital flow perspective, I don't think there'll be any impact. I guess the only thing that would actually make an impact is the fact that there would be additional due diligence required for anyone investing in South Africa and particularly for the members of the Financial Action Task Force. They are actually encouraged to apply more rigid due diligence requirements. So that does increase the costs of doing business. Uh, but we can also be taken off the list quite quickly. So Mauritius was put on the grey list, but it was taken off within 18 months after they complied with the requirements. So even if we do get put on the grey list, it seems that we can work quite quickly to get off the grey list. And Linda, even if I'm wrong about the market impact and the grey listing does have an effect, for events which are very well telegraphed and have been in the news for a long time, often when the event actually happens, it actually provides a great entry point. If you think back to the downgrade to sub-investment grade, which was a big fear in the market for a long period of time, when the downgrade actually happened, that was a phenomenal entry point for South African bonds and the RAND. Well, the RAND is actually quite weak at the moment. Um, I suppose one could argue that that's, if they, it does make an impact, that that's already in the price. Well, what are your thoughts on, on where the RAND is trading at the moment? Is that more a case of dollar strength? So the RAND has been a week. We've actually underperformed emerging market peers as well as commodity currencies like the Australian dollar quite significantly. And I think that's just driven by the, the negative outlook for the economy. Sentiment is quite poor. We're unable to generate power. And the, the growth prospects of sub 1% for an emerging market, that is, that is very poor. If, if an emerging market can't deliver growth, there's actually no real reason to invest in it. And I think that's what's driving the RAND weaker. But I think it has gotten to quite stretched levels. So if you look at above 18, it's around two standard deviations above fair value. So even though we have very high offshore allocations, last week we did take the opportunity when the RAND was above 18.20 to begin to add a little bit of hedges in and take some profit in those positions. So I think, yeah, overall, with regards to the grey listing, what's probably more important in terms of the direction of the RAND and capital flows are actually the underlying trade flows, of course, our international monetary policy and very much the behaviour of the South African government. And so with regards to the latter, the budget will be a key marker of whether we're moving in the right direction or not. So we shall wait to see what Wednesday afternoon brings. Thank you very much, Rashad, for joining me today. Thanks, Linda. We're holding thumbs. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Ford Asset Management. Ford Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider.